The only thing we can be sure of about the future is that it will be absolutely fantastic. Five, four, Welcome, everybody, to this special COVID-19 edition of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination's Into the Impossible podcast. I am your fearless host, Brian Keating, a professor of physics at UC San Diego, talking with a fellow uh, physicist, astronomer, writer, and blurber of my book. And I owe him many things, including a blurb for my book and proofreading it a long time ago, more than three years ago now. Uh, it's David Brin, Dr. David Brin, who is a world-renowned uh, writer, uh, award-winning writer, and also a scientist. And he maintains a flourishing uh, catalog of all his musings on his website, which is called Contrary Brin. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And uh, I've wanted to talk to David on the podcast for a very long time. Uh, but uh, and but a particular article of his in Contrary Brin, which you can find at davidbrin.blogspot.com, was uh, really focused on sort of the tagline, the subheading, which is looking towards the future. And David, first of all, let me welcome you and ask how are you doing and where are you? Uh, where I'm, I'm down by the beach. Where where are you currently? Uh, well. I, I happen to know you are be, you are beha- obeying the law better than that. Uh, you'd be <laughs> in, uh, That's right. If you were at La Jolla Shores at this moment, but um, I'm in my office uh, at home. Um, for me, the, that adjustment is not as great as for most people. Most days, I am working right here, uh, either writing fiction or nonfiction or <clears throat> that sort of thing. Um, still waiting to hear from NASA's Innovative and Advanced Concepts Program as to whether or not there's going to be a orientation meeting because I'm on their team of advisors, um, <clears throat> the advisory council for NIAC, uh, whether there's going to be a meeting back east in D.C. in June. And I expect it'll be canceled. But I'm hoping we'll get past all of this in time for NIAC's symposium in October because it's a highlight of my year to participate in NASA's most innovative and most far out and almost science fictional um, program um, and giving grants to, to small seed grants to groups that think they have something a bit outside the envelope that's worth investing. Interesting. I heard a seed funding or, you know, phase one study was approved for a radio telescope on the far side of the moon today. Uh, I don't know if that was under your purview or not. Yes. Well, NIAC just announced its, um, its new grants. And uh, there are a number of things. Uh, Joel Sersel of Transastra, for example, has um, grants to one to uh, investigate mining of asteroids for water, and another to has an innovative way to get solar power down into the deep craters at the lunar poles where the ice is. And the ice is there because the sunlight never falls there. So it's a little hard to combine copious solar power with... um, this uh, refining the water from a place where there's it exists there because there's never solar power 
Right, exactly. It's like the solar-powered flashlight I once received as a swag gift from the uh, SPIE. Uh, it kind of confused me at first. Oh, I used to collect the hand-powered flashlights, but uh, the solar-powered flashlight, that's a funny one, yes. <laughs> so, uh, so, David, today uh, we wanted to get your, get your opinion on this, uh, obviously this whole brave new world sort of cliche that we seem to be inhabiting. And I, I spoke last week with uh, my friend, your friend, Michael Shermer, <clears throat> on the Into the Impossible podcast that should be out by the time people hear this. And we discussed kind of the role that science fiction and science fiction authors play in really visualizing the future and helping us. And, you know, some are more successful in your case and than others. I won't name the others, but, but what is it about science fiction that can be used? Is it, is it its ability to sort of run as Einstein called it, Gedanken experiments, thought experiments. What about science fiction enables people to be futurists? Because on the face of it, they're not necessarily related, right? Yes, well, the whole question of prediction is, is a fraught and, and, uh, and a difficult one. Uh, Professor Tetlock, for example, has been leading efforts uh, that I've been engaged in because I, I'm one of those science fiction authors who speaks at the CIA and other agencies annually because they, they really want to get one more way of parting the curtain. But as Tetlock points out, even when you develop a new way to part the curtain on the future and, and model better, for example, uh, all that does is move the goalpost a little. We're all used now to uh, these wonderful, uh, fantastic weather models, for example, where you can get a vague general idea of what the weather is going to be like in your region 10 days out. And that for the next 48 hours, it's really useful hour by hour. Yes. When I was a kid, you know, you were lucky if the two-hour weather report was even vaguely in the right direction. <laughs> so this is a, um, a fantastic sign of the competence and advancement of the models of the people who are using the same technologies and the same formulas as uh, the climate people studying global climate change. So it really puts a burden of proof on um, people who deny climate change that uh, the models that they use to plan their vacations or what to wear that day uh, suddenly are no darn good when applied to similar problems. But what happens and what Tetlock points out is that when you move the goalposts, you only make the problem harder. And especially if everybody gets models, like models of the economy or models of the stock market, then everybody starts using them and that makes the models no good anymore. Right. So what science fiction does is we have a tendency to claim we're not in this business to predict. Uh, we're the highest form of science fiction is is novels or movies that prevent. In other words, we're not trying to predict what's going to happen. We're sometimes trying to prevent things from happening, and it can, at its best, be very effective. Um, 
millions of environmentalists were recruited to be active in this world uh, in environmental causes by the movie Soylent Green mm-hmm. and a number of science fiction uh, stories by John Brunner and Kate Wilhelm and others, you know, showing how if we're careless, we could lose it all. Um, nuclear war. Retired military officers say that it was definitely prevented. Accidents were prevented by movies like Dr. Strangelove, Failsafe, On the Beach, stuff like that, that changed the mindset, war games, that changed the mindset just enough so that some potential failure modes were fixed. And the granddaddy of all self-preventing prophecies would be George Orwell's 1984, which to this day inspires millions to worry about undue accumulation of power by conspiring elites. The difference between a decent Democrat and a decent Republican, and this used to be the case back when both were lively species, is that the decent Democrat is afraid that um, Orwellian powers are being accumulated by would-be big brothers out of aristocracy and wealth and um, faceless corporations. And a decent Republican is afraid that Big Brother is coalescing among snooty academics and faceless government bureaucrats. But if you put it that way, they're both right. right. Both are dangerous, and we should be guarding each other's backs. And the one thing that's been a collapse this last um, decade or so has been this sense that we're guarding each other's backs. Instead, we've been pitted against each other. So, you know, as as Asimov said, Isaac Asimov said, no, it was Fred Pohl. It's not the science fiction author's job to predict the automobile. It's our job to predict the traffic jam. What are the possible repercussions of these advances. And so, you know, I've I've done predictions in the near future, the intermediate future, which is really hard in my novels, Earth and Existence. And then there's the far future where you can have lots of fun. You have throwing warp drive and talking dolphins and and have some great adventures. But it's the near-term stuff where you can have real effect. Exactly. So we're in the middle of of a potentially existential climate uh, of, of, of in the biological sphere and sort of ecological mixed with the impact of humans and animals. And that is, the, of course, the COVID-19 uh, worldwide pandemic. And what I thought would be so timely is to, is to kind of go through your thought process on how you appraise these risks. You are an advisor, as you said, to certain three-letter agencies. And, and that's for a reason. And I think that some of the, uh, some of the scenarios you paint and you paint sort of long-term and, and perhaps intermediate term and then certainly longer-term uh, impacts. And I, I think what I want to know, first of all, have you ever lived through anything comparable to this? I mean, the closest that I can think of is you know, September 11th when there's just a paradigm shift. 
uh, what, does this remind you of anything? I mean, you're not old enough. Uh, you know, I tease you and I love you, but uh, I never say would, would, would even hint that you're old enough to remember the depression. Cause of course you're not, but, uh, but from your parents, from your father who's a renowned uh, scholar himself, what did he tell you? What, what lessons from the past is this comparable in any way? Or are we just on a totally different, uh, branch of the wave function right now? Well, you, you, for one thing, Brian, you very smartly pointed in the right direction and the right direction is the past. Um, science fiction authors, uh, supposedly, uh, science is the main thing driving our, our, our extrapolations and our projections, but that's not true. It should have been named speculative history because, uh, a certain fraction of science fiction, mine, because I have the training, um, is often, not always, based upon ex uh, the next scientific thing. But almost all science fiction authors are deeply steeped in history because that's what science fiction really does. It is taking the greatest story ever told, and that is the 6,000 years of recorded human history, which is horrendous, a story of horrendous errors and injustices and grotesque mistakes made by kings who, who killed the people who might have helped them to prevent that mistake because it was criticism. And you know how humans hate, love criticism, <laughs> especially human leaders. The, um, if you look across all that time and you see the patterns, you realize that that's the story. Breaking out from those patterns, from those traps. And so, you know, it's not for accident that my father's generation was called the greatest generation. They survived the Depression when things were worse than this. They overcame Hitler when the threat was worse than where we face. Um, he, was, he was born into the uh, 1918 flu epidemic. They all lived in deadly fear for their children uh, up until I was about six years old when Jonas Salk saved childhood by immunizing us against polio. And uh, whereas Franklin Delano Roosevelt was the most beloved figure for the greatest generation, absolutely adored by them, uh, Jonas Salk was adored by the generations of the 50s. Uh, for giving us back hope in our childhood and easing the fears of all those people who were far more desperately afraid for their children yeah. than we are now. For the you know, old guys like me, who might be the, um, the, the top victims of the uh, COVID-19 I mean, COVID, um, uh, virus. So, you know, it's the historical perspective, I think, that we're sadly lacking, and especially, you know, in the political problems we have. I mean, to, to not recognize that across those 6,000 years, almost 99% of all those cultures um, languished under feudalism, ruled by kings and, and, and priests and lords and all of that, when the last 200 years, when we escaped from that, way of life, 
we started actually accomplishing stuff. <laughs> Duh. Um, so to go back to rule by some aristocracy or king, this is, this is the agenda that, that Vladimir Putin and the Saudis have for us. Mm-hmm. It, it's not just that it's not our way. It's a stupid way. And there's 6,000 years of proof that it's a stupid way. And so looking, <clears throat> looking towards the you know, future without being particularly you know, uh, Pollyannish, I, I would say, you, you really list a couple of, of different things that resonated especially with me. And that is, um, is that, you know, in your, in your article, again, we're going to post this in the show notes, both in YouTube and on the iTunes store for podcasts. Um, this is an article called uh, Reper- or More Repercussions in a Plague Year and Some Long Term. Uh, the first thing uh, I thought was so interesting <clears throat> for you to sort of cite was what may be happening behind perhaps one of the most intriguing characters in society today, someone by the name of Elon Musk. Um, and that's how, you know, sort of these, these brilliant visionaries can perhaps uh, take, take maybe their own initiative, advisedly or not, but try thousands of, 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 of seeds planted in the ground to see if perhaps one will bloom. So I think I want to focus on the, first, uh, on the first of your kind of major, major predictions, or, or perhaps it's already occurring right now, uh, and that is how we could actually bifurcate the, the problem at its root and perhaps go and, and find uh, some resistance or uh, perhaps find people via serology or other means of testing to look for this, uh, you know, people that have recovered from this. So first, can you, can you talk about this idea that, may, that you write could have occurred elsewhere or could have occurred to someone like Elon Musk um, for people that may or may not have had this illness uh, currently and be asymptomatic at present? Well, I mean, it, it seemed obvious to me about a month ago, I started talking about this and got really bad feedback from people. And all of a sudden now, about one week ago, I start seeing the idea everywhere. Uh, and that's the job of a science fiction author, to get apoplectic and, and upset because nobody gives you credit for the idea that they all called ridiculous just recently. That's right. The ridicule but, phase is the prerequisite that's, that's, for the that's a obvious. <laughs> yeah, it's a standard professional complaint. In this case, it's very simple. Um, if we had good testing, and we don't yet, uh, it's been promised for some time, but if we had good testing, um, it would be possible for Elon Musk, for example, to put out a call for auto workers who have already experienced their COVID-19 infection. Now, maybe they got sick and recovered. Maybe they just simply tested out, as about a third of people do, as having had it, gained an immunity, and never noticed. Yep. You put them in quarantine at the Pebble Beach Golf Club, which is not very far from the um, Elon's uh, test empty, factory, right? For, it's empty currently for one week and keep testing them, and then you ship them over to the to the Tesla factory and say everyone working in this factory is COVID positive. So 
who are they going to hurt? Now, it's true. There are listed, they found about six different subvariants of the COVID-19. And it is possible to get secondarily infected with a different variant. So things are more complicated. But from what I've heard, those secondary, uh, for healthy, young or middle-aged people who have already experienced the virus, those secondary effect, uh, infect, infections manifest as a sniffle. So the question is, how long will it be? I predict before the end of the week, before somebody comes out and says, um, why don't we have some restaurants that are staffed by COVID positives and are open for COVID positives? How about um, uh, that Universal Studios is for COVID positives and Disney not for COVID negatives? You can't do the latter. You can't do it for the latter until you have really, really good rapid testing. But at least it's a path to getting things back open again. And I'll be honest with you, I, I, I see it as really the only path in the near future. Now, you go a little farther and you go a little farther uh, into the future and you start having other things. I mean, the testing opens up other possibilities. But of course, like for instance, doing it intelligently, doing isolation intelligently the way the South Koreans and the Taiwanese did. And that's actually testing everybody and then finding the supercarriers and and doing uh, contact tracing. Now that's standard quarantine techniques, and we'll be better at that next time. Yes. It's been pointed out that the death rate for COVID nineteen is terrible, but largely because it'll over it'll over the sick people will overwhelm our medical staff. Um, the death rate is not truly horrendous by historical standards. And so some people say, well, this is, this is going to leave us in much better shape for when something really science fictional hits, something really horrible hits. And I have, um, I have science fiction about that. There's been a lot of science fiction about pandemics. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm... I'm well, you can go to my website. I have a page of, of, of pandemic stories and novels and movies. Um, people are talking about how one of the uh, soonest treatments that they might try out of desperation is what's called serum. Now, you've all heard that word. And uh, a lot of women have um, skincare serums, they're called, they're sold in these little tiny bottles, and it has nothing to do with what a real serum is. A real serum is where you take blood from a person who has survived an illness and strain out the antibodies and give them to a, a victim just to knock the virus down so that the victim has time to develop their own antibodies. Uh, and so that's that's being tried in a very preliminary way uh, um, around the world. 
So that's what uh, you point out in the piece is, uh, has been featured in Omega Man and Outbreak, uh, two, two films that you describe as yes, lurid. Yes, in, in those films, in Outbreak, they come back with the monkey that's the original source. Yeah, and right. Cuba Gooding Jr. disappears into a, into a uh, trailer, a lab trailer, and comes out within 45 minutes <laughs> with, <laughs> with the, the serum. A uh, serum that, that it almost instantly saves Rene Russo. <laughs> it's a little harder a little than that. Harder. But that's the point. Yeah. It's going to get easier because we're going to throw resources at this. Yeah. And I think, you know, you start off in terms of technological changes with a call out to the Manhattan Project, and, and you discussed that a little bit in the context of the greatest generation. <clears throat> so uh, two of my, you know, kind of green shoots looking forward is that perhaps as the Manhattan Project um, did uh, for physics in the 20th century, namely stimulating nuclear research, high energy particle physics, the LHC, uh, particle physics in general, both theory and these massive colliders culminating with the Large Hadron Collider in Europe, um, as well as the program to develop radar, which, as you know, uh, led to the development of radio astronomy as a practical uh, tool to learn more about the universe, including the serendipitous discovery by Bell Laboratory scientists Arno Penzias and uh, Robert Wilson of the cosmic microwave background radiation that I study. Those were both directly related with, with genetics and, and uh, direct lineage to the World War II. So the Manhattan Project, of course, is much more well-known for producing the atom bomb, but, uh, but equally important and arguably more, much more important on a daily basis for things like weather radar, et cetera, was the development of radar taking place at Lincoln Labs and, and Bell eventually as well. So I like to think maybe a green shoot that might emerge is... Uh, will be found in the, in the context of, of rapid testing, which is not you know, high tech, but scalability of advanced technology. But perhaps uh, with, you know, with a real Manhattan Project-esque push to develop CRISPR, to develop uh, biological testing and editing and capabilities uh, for the first time, reminiscent of the Manhattan Project. My question to you is, can we keep up with nature? In other words, we, we harness the power of the atom, you know, before we were really mature enough to use it properly, uh, arguably, although it did lead to the end of, of World War II, obviously. But do you think a similar danger could be present in this green shoot <laughs> that, uh, that we might develop technology that might come back to, to haunt us later on? Well, I think that's, those are several very, very good questions, very good points. And all of my life, um, I've heard the phrase, it's too bad that our wisdom hasn't kept up with our technology. And my blog is called Contrary Britain, which means that I have an automatic reflex that got me killed in all of my previous lives before I was 16 years old. And I have an automatic uh by the way, I don't believe in reincarnation. That is a <laughs> metaphor. Um, the, the, uh, the reflex to be contrarian is that, in fact, it appears to me that there have been many technologies that have not met the schedules we expected for them, like spaceflight. We expect it to be at Saturn by now. Mm -hmm. But our... Um, ancestors 
even in the greatest generation, if we brought them forward from World War II, uh, to, to have seen uh, President Obama, for example, uh, to have seen the, uh, the um, mixed races that are routine on television and we take for granted now, to have seen so many things, examples of us gradually, grudgingly becoming better. Now, it's true that right now, the forces that are preventing us from showing the maturity towards ecological matters, that easily 60%, even 70% of Americans uh, would would prefer to see um, that there are reasons why that generously forward-looking uh, attitude is 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 not is not propelling us as far as it should. But this is one of the reasons why I wrote my nonfiction book called The Transparent Society. Uh, and that is that one thing has enabled us to accomplish so much in a positive sum way. The positive sum is where I win, I want to win more than you win. But I don't want to win by causing you to lose. Right. In a positive sum game, all I want to be is a little richer than you. But I want you to be rich too. A zero sum game is one in which I win by making you lose. And that's what happens in most sports. And that was most of human history. Right. If we can manage a positive sum game, then the rising tide raises all boats. And the only thing that has ever, ever enabled that to happen is what we innovated for the last 200 years, and that's transparency. Reciprocally being able to find each other's errors and hold each other accountable, and then make alliances with each other. So, you know, that's a, that's a whole other topic. Yeah. As, far as, as far as the implications for this plague year, is concerned. What we need to do is uh, is take advantage of the vast proliferation of talent and skill that we've been developing. And the only way we can do that is by keeping things open. Yeah. I look back at 9-11, you know, people look back at, at the year 2001 and they remember the Twin Towers falling. What they don't remember is something that happened a month later, and that was the anthrax attacks. This, this brilliant imbecile filled envelopes with weaponized anthrax spores and sent them around to sabotage and murder, and a couple people died. And what was the response of the United States government? The United States immediately said, hello, all the world's experts, here's what's going on. Come and help. And as a result, the 99.99% of skilled biological researchers who were sane collaborated to overcome the 0.0001% who were insane. Yes. And the problem was solved quickly. And that's, that's what we rely upon. Exactly. And I think, you know, you brought up in that, 
you know, concomitant with the transparent society, I think has to be an, an openness and, uh, and obviously the sunlight being the best disinfectant. And in the book, or in the piece rather, which maybe will turn into a book, uh, you talk a lot about the really, you know, kind of tectonic shifts in the way that Americans have adapted more or less instantaneously. I know I'm running, you know, this unlicensed daycare center here while advising graduate students and trying not to, you know, toilet train a graduate student uh, or teach quantum mechanics to a, to a two-year-old. Uh, and that's a meeting with mixed success, uh, but, but I'm getting through it. Uh, you point out the role of, 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 you know, kind of remote virtual presence. And I wonder if you could get into that a little bit. How can society expect to um, uh, take advantage of this? Or do you think as soon as the all clear is given, uh, we will get back to uh, get back to our old habits and can continue, you know, flying around the world to uh, go to, you know, climate change conferences or, you know, astronomical telescopes, et cetera. Uh, do you see a, a long-term repercussion uh, accruing to our benefit? Or do you think, you know, we're natural to go back to our, our wasteful old ways? Well, I think it's going to be sort of midway between those two. Mm-hmm. Obviously, um, for instance, uh, there's so- several technologies that are going to get a huge boost out of this beyond the biomedical, beyond the important ones that we're going to be investing in to um, handle the testing and the vaccines much quicker than before and the detection and all of that. For one thing, is going to be local sourcing. Uh, the ships that crisscross the ocean, spewing carbon into the air, and, and uh, just because labor was a little bit cheaper in China, that's going to go into decline because it was already going to go into a decline. Because we're gaining technologies that will enable uh, uh, people in a city to get a large fraction of their food, a large fraction of their manufactured goods from real close nearby. Uh, and you know, that includes additive manufacturing, 3D printing, uh, all sorts of things. Um, and that's going to reduce waste. And so it's going to have positive ecological benefits, but it's also going to make us more resilient. And that's a very important word. Um, the last several times I've been back east to talk to three-letter agencies, I've pounded the table about resilience. And there's a... Um, There's an interview that I did with the Proceedings of the ACM that will appear underneath this interview, and Brian will, I'm sure, offer that link, in which I talk about all sorts of ways in which our cell phones, for example, in a crisis, is the exact time when we need them and the exact time they won't work. Yes. Because the cell towers will go down. And we've seen this happen many times. Um, There is a way that our phone systems could be vastly more more, um, resilient. And it would be very easy if it's ready to do, and it's almost turnkey. We have 2 million solar homes in America today. Almost all of them shut down in a power blackout for a really, really stupid reason that could be easily fixed. And I speak about pandemics and things like that. This was in an interview last year. So... This notion of resilience is something that's absolutely essential for us to restore. And one of the things will be uh, local sourcing. Another is 
yes, we'll develop better business meeting wear, better speechifying uh, ways of holding meetings and things like that. And the regular meetings, conventions and all that, they'll be back. Uh, this is a personal worry to me because a substantial portion of my income has come from public speaking. Yeah. Will I be paid the big bucks for a speech to a yeah. virtual audience? You might have to rely on the know. proceeds, you know, the honorarium that I'm sending you uh, after today. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I expect to cash that in. That's right. Uh, another thing that you brought up, and I, I know that you uh, take part in uh, personally, is sort of this, um, you know, really ultra local, micro local um, uh, economy of uh, of gardening and subsistence. Uh, can you talk about the prospects for that uh, in a world where you know there could be, say, a second wave, a third wave? Uh, would you say now is not a bad time for people to do as you have done with? urban or maybe suburban farming uh, uh, for people that can, can, can do such a thing. I, I find it a great way not only to have some resiliency measure, I don't have a huge plot, but, but to have, have some resiliency and also educate my kids. What, what do you think about that as a, as a positive outcome of this whole awful pandemic? Well, you know, for one thing, having developed a fairly large <clears throat> vegetable garden, I have come to realize that there's no way on God's green earth I'm going to feed myself or my family. <laughs> it's, it's too just, hard. It's just yeah. a complete illusion. What <laughs> I am going to do is I'm going to get a whole lot of artichokes that I can swap. Yes. I can barter. Maybe I can barter for a bushel of grain at some point. Uh, but I'll give you a telescope eyepiece that I'm not using in exchange for there, a bushel. There, there you go. Uh, no, but the, to have the habit of maintaining a victory garden. This is one of the positive, this, the, the green shoots you talk about. Uh, it's almost impossible to buy seeds right at this particular point in April, 2020, because people are, are, are loading up their um, minivans with manure and, and seeds and, and, and going for it. Now, I think that's, I think that's terrific. Yeah. At the opposite extreme of that impulse is, of course, the preppers, and they're buying up guns as if they didn't already have 40 or 50 guns. Uh, my novel, The Postman, which was made into that movie by Kevin Costner, and, and I have mixed feelings about it. It was actually visually oh, I, I love that movie. I, I know you pan it, but I actually really I, I know. I, I, I think two out of three ain't bad. It's yeah. visually and musically one of the most beautiful films ever shot. It's my favorite Kevin so Costner movie. Don't and, destroy and, it. And he did not betray the heart message about citizenship in my book. Uh, it's dumber than a stone, but gorgeous, big-hearted, and dumb? That's what my wife married. Ah. <laughs> you know, so, so, you know, uh, there's, there's worse things. There's worse things exactly. than gorgeous, right. big-hearted, and dumb. You know, and do you see? Uh, yeah, you you talk also about uh, about education, which is obviously a priority uh, for you. Not only uh, having been the the product of uh, the, the higher educational system, earning your your doctorate, uh, attending Caltech, attending UC San Diego, and being a, a practicing astronomer for some time uh, before you uh, before you went uh, commercial. No, before you uh, began your uh, really illustrious career as a writer uh, and thinker and public intellectual, which I think is really the way I think about you. Um, 
what do you see as the future of education? Uh, even before this happened, I started to think about distance learning. Is my career, is my job really a long term for my students and their students, my grand students, of which I have a couple already, which is kind of scary. My graduate students who are professors themselves have now obtained their own graduate students. I think when you get to the fourth generation, you have to quit or something. But but when I look at them, I look at my young graduates, you know, grandchildren, as it were, in graduate school. Um, what prospects will they have when, you know, perhaps in not too long from now, instead of talking to me about, uh, about astronomy, they can talk to a, uh, a doppelganger of Galileo himself. And why should, what, what relevance will I have in such an era? Well, you know, look, I'm torn about that sort of question. First off, the science fiction author in me is happy to dive in and write stories about such scenarios. And I have. I mean, I, I, one of my most popular stories uh, called Stones of Significance is set in a pretty much post-singularity world in which we're pretty much gods. Uh, people are pretty much gods because we've added to those prefrontal lobes you mentioned, new layers, new layers, new layers. They're in the walls of the house and they're interacting with us and we aren't being dominated by AI. We are. Yeah, AI. augmented. That's right. Um, and so it's great grist for um, uh, science fiction. And I might mention uh, my short story, um, uh, The Giving Plague, uh, which is about how viruses interact with their hosts and find, a, um, find either a way to kill them or, or come to terms with their hosts. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's available at my website, davidbrin.com. You just go to short stories and you can get this Hugo-nominated Hugo -nominated, um, story, The Giving Plague. And uh, it it's, has somewhat to do with the fact that you know, I was, was then and am now a blood donor and I was just prevented by the COVID yeah. thing from giving my 96th pint. But there's also another side of me. And that is the consultant. That's the, uh, you know, the guy who gives, you know, sage speeches about the near future. And, and that guy, you know, says one thing, and that is, it's not our job to worry about that, about whether or not our, the grand graduate students, the, the little tiny, the, the distant graduate students of your graduate students, of your graduate students, um, talk to an AI Galileo or whether or not uh, they have to use sign language because they're chimps <laughs> or they squeak through, an, through a translator because they're dolphins or they're aliens or they're AIs. Our job is to create a civilization that's wise enough to raise them to be wise enough to deal with that. That's enough. Intellectual to, right, to have the two That's enough. It's enough. Dainu, it's enough for our for us to raise a new generation that's not stupid in the ways we were. Just like we're not stupid in the way our ways our parents took for granted. My parents were liberals of their day. Mm -hmm. But they would have plotzed if I brought home a, per, uh, a, 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 a date from a, from a distant race. Um, you know, 
they would have got used to it. They were like that, they, but they weren't used to it. So it's our job to make things better enough that our wiser and better children can make children who are wiser and better enough that they can make the makers of Star Trek. <laughs> very good, very good. So in the last couple of minutes uh, before, we, before we break for this uh, inaugural episode of what I think or and hope will be a, a recurring series, but we'll see uh, depending on whether the check actually clears uh, that, I've, uh, that I've posted in the mail, but the postman is late today, so um, no pun intended. The uh, postman. The postman, exactly. You got it. Yes. Um, so I want to just kind of close with... Uh, with some thoughts, perhaps recollections that, that you uh, can share with us uh, of how people can develop this resiliency of mind. And I think that's really what you're, what you're getting at with, uh, with what we owe our graduate students. Well, it's not just to graduate students alone. It should be for the public, for the, for the intellectually engaged uh, public who pay our taxes as scientists, especially those of us in state universities like myself. Uh, and I want to know, you know, in the end, we started off with a little bit of history. Uh, maybe we can end with a little bit of history of how people can get engaged or perhaps, you know, is there, is there something to be uh, hopeful about that we haven't covered, perhaps? Uh, you know, I see this, the, the you know, globalism and, and things like that. Perhaps that's, that's something that we now can rely on in a positive way, maybe cooperating with countries around the world except, uh, instead of, uh, you know, kind of, of fighting with one another. Because we don't have a foe, you know, that can really be vanquished the way that we did in a war. And so I think it's hard to, to maintain this level of, of discipline, of commitment, and do you see any danger uh, of, of you know society kind of having trouble adjusting to this as a reality, or do you think that we could pull together as generations of the past have uh, through intellectual curiosity engagement, as we like to study here at the Arthur C. Clarke Center? Do you feel hopeful? I mean, what's your in a, in a sentence? What are you feeling right now, just at an emotional level, for the future? Well, I, I'm contrary, Brent. So yes, if I'm right. around optimists who are fizzing with just total, you know, live assumptions of success, I, I can shake my finger with the best of them. Uh, there are plenty of warning signs. I live in an era in which there is too much gloom and it is reducing our confidence, which is the basis upon which we can solve problems and save all our lives. I think the odds have always been against us, especially against this renaissance that, that escaped from, from the stupidity trap of feudalism. The odds have always been against us, and I think the odds are still against us. Uh, but with the odds only being two to one against us, that makes me a freaking optimist in the course of human events. And I think we can do it. Uh, our parents' generation did it. Right. Are we made of lesser stuff? No, I refuse that. It insults them to say that they made a generation less good than them. And I'll tell you this, my kids' generation, I talk to them, I talk to a great many of them, and they are better, nicer, smarter people than us okay boomers. Yeah. And who gets the credit for that? <sighs> yes, that's right. He's he two thumbs. Them. 
That's right. So <laughs> they can't win, even even if they're better than us, and That's they right. are. We made them. That's exactly the pattern that has to continue. And what we need to do, us boomers, is stop panicking, decide that we are in favor of this renaissance, quell phase eight of the freaking American Civil War, and the phases go back to 1778. It wasn't just the 1860s. Quell this phase of the American Civil War, get it behind us, and start doing what we're good at. And that is surprising everybody. <laughs> Very good. Well, that uh, certainly brightened up my day on an otherwise uh, gloomy, cloudy, rainy San Diego uh, early spring uh, day. Uh, David, I want to thank you for this. I want to potentially schedule a revisit of this sometime in the in the not too distant future. And I want to thank you for your time, your insights uh, as usual. I want to. Uh, point out to folks that David can be found all over the web, but uh, in particular, uh, the article that we were quoting today can't, comes from his uh, blogspot, davidbrin.blogspot.com. He also maintains a website at davidbrin.com, and I think you can get uh, interchangeably between the two. I'll provide some links and, uh, and resources in the show notes. And I want to thank folks out there for listening. And please leave your comments in the comment section if you're watching this on YouTube. Please leave a review if you're listening on iTunes. And uh, really appreciate your time, David. Uh, stay well. Stay healthy. We need you more than ever. Uh, well, I, I, I have pretty, pretty low blood pressure, so I'm, I'm not too worried. But I am scrubbing every surface. So... <laughs> You, t- you guys take care, and, and thank you, Brian Keating, a maven of mavens and uh, scholar of scholars. Thank you, David. If you enjoyed this episode of Into the Impossible, please subscribe, comment, share, and review. For a chance to win a free copy of our most recent guest's newest book, send a screenshot of your review to info at imagine. We appreciate hearing from you and are always open to your suggestions for future episodes. Into the Impossible is a production of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination at UC San Diego in the Division of Physical Sciences. Directed by Eric Veery, Brian Keating, and Patrick Coleman. Produced by Stuart Volko. For more information, go to imagine.ucsd.com. Find us on Twitter at ImagineUCSD.com.